today on Ag News Daily. The, uh, the harvest side of the business has to slow up, and when the harvest side slows up, well, then that, that backs up the supply chain of the animals themselves, and, and so then there's an issue with animals getting bigger, and as the chain moves backwards, it starts to uh, expand the supply. Well, folks, Tanner Winterhoff here, joined back in the state of Iowa by Delaney Howell. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Isn't it interesting that when you get back home, just that feeling of, ah, I'm here, relaxed, even though you love traveling and seeing the world and taking care of business, but nothing feels like home. And there's just something about sleeping in your own bed. (laughs) Yeah. With your own pillow. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Well, at least you're back and the trip went hopefully well and definitely was safe. Did you miss me, Tanner? I'm not saying that. Oh, okay. I thought maybe I heard a little <laughs> bit of it in your voice. Uh, that's the uh, natural inflection that uh, us podcast broadcasters can control. Turn on and turn off. I see. Okay. Well, here I was feeling flattered, but at any you didn't rate. You me, did you? Oh, um, no. See? Yeah. <laughs> I totally, totally get it. Well, I'll get our listeners caught up. We talked a little bit yesterday about uh, what would happen if the Biden administration, specifically President Biden, used his executive power to create climate change as a emergency. So he is looking to fast track the switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy, but not According to the headlines in this article, the full climate change initiative that was originally uh, broadcasted yesterday. So climate initiatives, like we talked about, were put on hold after Senator Joe Manchin of Delaware, I believe. No, West Virginia. I apologize. uh, Pulled the plug on Democratic leaders' efforts to support that large economic package, which led to those discussions of what could President Biden do next? He spoke out yesterday saying we need to move boldly and immediately to transition America away from fossil fuels into renewable energy like wind and solar. <clears throat> now, it's clear to legislation legislation to address our climate crisis. President Biden is going to look at putting emergency footing ahead to address this disaster. So what could be next? It looks like Biden is saying at least his executive committees. Uh, are addressing program funding for strengthening flood control, bolstering utilities, and organizing heating and cooling assistance for low-income communities. The switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy throughout domestic offshore wind built by Vineyard Wind and workplace heat inspections, including parameters for which employers can force employees to work or not amid extreme heat and cold. So Delaney, the three things here as focus don't have a lot to do with biofuels. It looks like uh, the first three things are more about workplace and small community control, and then switching from fossil fuels to wind to generate some power. Well, speaking of the Biden administration trying to control things, they're trying to continue to control inflation, Tanner. 
And the Fed is anticipated to meet or will be meeting, I should say, next week, July 26th and 27th. And it's largely anticipated that they will once again increase interest rates by about 75 basis points is what most folks are expecting. I'm sure you as a banker maybe have a little bit more insight into that, Tanner. Have you guys already risen interest rates at the bank in anticipation of this? No, there hasn't been any preemptive move at this time. Uh, when you look at the yield curve, it's working its way to an inverted position. So your longer term three, five, seven, ten year rates have already adjusted and built in uh, and will probably stay fairly consistent. We actually saw the 10 year treasury drop over the weekend, um, but the short term operating notes tied to the Wall Street Journal Prime, which is usually adjusted in line with the Fed, won't move until that rate hike actually happens. But did did touch a little bit yesterday on the speculation that that 75 basis points could become a full percent as they're looking to get ahead of inflation. Okay, well, it's likely going to happen, it sounds like. I don't know. I'd give it a pretty good chance, Tanner, wouldn't you? I would say so. It uh, certainly with the the lack of aggressiveness in some opinions versus uh, the others feeling like it is the most aggressive move. Uh, yes, there will be definitely a move upward. It'll just be curious to see how much. Well, Tanner, I know you've been touching on this piece of news a little bit, but I've been doing a lot of reading on Russia's gas and oil situation and Uh, Over the past couple of days, we've seen some major events coming to light, one of which was Nord Stream 1, which is one of Russia's largest oil and gas producing facilities. It provides about 90% of the EU's energy needs, 90%. Well, it went offline about 10 days ago for what they're calling, quote unquote, routine maintenance, convenient timing. Because just about two days ago, we saw another one of their gas uh, producing facilities, Gazprom, declared force majeure, telling people and telling specifically EU companies and clients that have done business with Gazprom that they weren't entirely sure if they could fulfill those contracts. Now we're seeing Nord Stream 1 theoretically go back up online today or tomorrow. However... Here's the big however. Uh, President Putin warned yesterday following his summit in Iran that this pipeline's flow has already dropped to only 40% capacity, and it more than likely might be back up online with just 20% of its capacity. So when you talk about things going on behind the scenes, Tanner, it feels awfully convenient that Russia is shutting down two of its largest gas and nat gas producing facilities and is cutting off the EU. Uh, and the EU still has lots of sanctions on Russian goods. Yeah, Tommy Grisafi on Monday, I think, said it quite well as, you know, we're, we don't use as much of those fuels in the warm summer months. But it'll be really interesting to see if this is a test play for extended conversations as the temperatures turn cooler because there will be a lot of very bad situations uh, if we can't heat homes and businesses over in the EU. But back inside our borders, uh, last week that climate bill dissolution has created a lot of different 
angles of scrambling. So the collapse of the climate legislation could severely hamper the development of clean burning transportation fuels as investors and lobbyists and analysts are all watching. U.S. biofuel industry was banking on the legislation that would boost the investment in fuels like sustainable aviation fuel made from animal fats, greases, and crop oils, produce fewer carbon emissions using that over traditional jet fuel. The U.S. fuel makers had been increasing their output of these cleaner burning fuels for industries such as that, but the renewable diesel production is continuing to be the only profitable option due to state and federal financial incentives. However, the SAF, or Sustainable Aviation Fuel, is two to five times more expensive than jet fuel and would require substantial government interjection for it to become sustainable. Last week, obviously, when uh, we saw the dooming legislation come into place, there were a lot of people put on alert because that bill had included incentives to increase investment in SAF, and other low carbon transportation fuels. Companies that have been working on producing SAF all along with the idea and relying on this policy to go forward, know that if it lapses completely, they're gonna lose all momentum and may have to close their doors. So spokesperson Paul Winters said from the Clean Fuels Alliance that the industry group composed of all these biofuel producers is beginning to lobby extremely hard to see if they can push for continued legislation that requires aviation areas to lower their emissions, pushing them into using gallons of SAF. So I didn't realize there was jet fuel made from animal fats, Delaney, Mm. uh, but certainly not going to be a viable option moving forward, it sounds like, unless there are other ways to substitute funding for that purchase. Well, Tanner, we're not going to need to see producers substitute fertilizer for uh, less fertilizer or a new product because we're continuing to see here for the second week of July, retail fertilizer prices have mostly continued to head lower, which makes it the seventh week now, Tanner, of lower prices in about seven of the eight major fertilizers. Urea has been continuing to be significantly lower compared to weeks and months prior. We're now sitting at about 10% lower compared to last month. And prices are still substantially higher than where they usually are for this time of year, Tanner. But we are continuing to see the trend point lower, which I think is the silver lining here. Yeah, it is. It is definitely positive news. Of course, everybody would like to see them go lower yet, but we need to get some inventory secured before I can see that happening a lot further. So typically on Thursdays, and it seems like today the theme of all of my news is related to fuel, ethanol production rose for the first time in the last six weeks. So uh, inventories declined slightly. The production for the last seven days that ended July 15th rose to an average of 1.034 million barrels per day. That's up from the 1.005 million reported on last week for the first gain since June 10th. The USDA monthly report <clears throat> said that it expects 5.735 billion bushels of corn to be used to make ethanol during the 2022-2023 marketing year that starts in September 1. That is still unchanged from the initial look. So even though ethanol inventories 
for the week ending July 15th declined to 23.553 million barrels, down from 23.6. The government said they don't expect there to be increased production for the next calendar year. So good news, we're still continuing to see strong and steady ethanol production, but it doesn't look like we're going to see a rise in demand out of that industry anytime soon. Tanner, we might see some rain in some key areas this year that need it desperately. We're talking, you know, the Texas panhandle down areas in the, in the southern, southern area of the United States. Because although they're having some extremely hot temperatures here, and we've been having them here in Iowa too, I know, and that will continue here for about the next 10 days. But Eric Snodgrass in his morning newsletter this morning said that there is a ridge setting up right now in the Gulf of Alaska, which is not a ridge we've had so far here in 2022. And he said that shift will allow for more low pressure to develop and stall over the Hudson Bay. And that multiple weak, slow moving fronts will likely move through the eastern two thirds of the United States here in about the next 15 days to finish out July with some rains in areas that desperately need it. Tanner. That's good news. We didn't know if that would happen, but uh, almost like Eric knew it was going to happen. He talked about those slow moving storms. The last piece I have today is Congress is continuing to look at ways to reform the H-2A guest worker program. Obviously, our listeners have continued to battle labor and consistent labor at that. So the bill would allow guest workers to stay in the country year round and alleviate some of that pressure. So if you're not aware of the current program, after nine months consecutive, they have to return home. But this would potentially allow up to 20,000 of these workers to receive three-year visas. This now essentially allows them to work in livestock facilities such as dairy, pork producers, and other areas that needed year-round labor. So that 20,000 cap is just the first number. Uh, This bill would give the authority to the Department of Labor and the USDA to consider when it's necessary to increase those. Also, as this bill goes through the House, the Senate could increase that baseline limit as well. Uh, This would be great news for the agriculture industry. The same bill would also legalize potentially hundreds of thousands of farm workers who are now working in the country illegally, giving them the opportunity to qualify for visas so they can keep working on the farm. And again, looking at ways to enhance the E-Verify system when hiring these workers. So a lot of good news there for the labor pool, especially when it relates to ag. The problem is a lot of pushback on that 20,000 number, as it sounds like North Carolina itself, not even California, North Carolina used 20, just shy of 24,000 temporary workers in the last calendar year. So just one state hits that 20,000 figure. But good news, at least moving forward for my last piece for the day, Delaney. Well, not such great news, Tanner, when we look at where the markets have been trading in the overnights here, certainly seeing a lot of red on the screen and not seeing a lot of positive movement here, maybe trading on some of those extended weather forecasts that Eric mentioned this morning in his newsletter. But nonetheless, new crop corns down about 11 cents this morning, trading right around 576. New crop soybeans heading into the opening down about 18 cents at 13.14. Hard to believe we're over a dollar difference now between 
uh, the spring crop insurance price and where new crop futures are trading. Wheat is down about two pennies on the morning at 8.32. And as you look at livestock this morning, we're seeing some mixed trade there. Continued strength in the live cattle market as we saw May exports, Tanner, largest exports ever reported on record. So that's continued to keep beef demand strong internationally, but also nationally, which has helped support the markets here. August Live cattle up about two cents on the morning at 135. New cattle feeder contracts, August down 92 cents and lean hogs this morning in the August contract are trading about $2 higher at 114.87 and a half. And Tanner, one market that we don't have a futures contract for, but is a pretty large commodity grown out West, especially is Lamb production, Tanner. And that's something we're going to talk about on today's podcast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to learn more. Good morning, listeners. I am excited to introduce Mr. Reed Anderson, president of the National Lamb Feeders Association, joining us all the way from Pacific time this morning, which if you've scheduled an interview with us anytime. You know I'm not great at time zones, so we're thanking him for being patient with us this morning and getting on our call. Reed, thank you for joining us, and we're really excited to have you. To start off here, can you just give us a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? Well, I don't know how much time you have. I'll try to to paraphrase as much as I can. Um, So I'm a fifth generation sheep guy um, here in Oregon, Willamette Valley. I'm, uh, I tell people we're between the ducks and the beavers, uh, ducks being University of Oregon, beavers being uh, Oregon State University, go beeves. And uh, so we've always been here. The Andersons have been here for, like I said, uh, five generations. My My son is the sixth generation. Um, so we've been, uh, pasturing sheep here for all that time. My, um, my predecessors, they weren't near as involved in the sheep businesses as, uh, I am. We, we took it to, uh, another level. And in, uh, 1998, we started marketing meat and, uh, and then in, uh, 2012, we, um, built our own uh, meat processing plants. So we, we harvest cattle, lambs, and goats, uh, every week. And, uh, we do about, uh, about 600 lambs and goats a week and about a hundred head of cattle uh, a week. And, uh, so we've, we've been, uh, marketing our, our own, uh, meat here for several years up and down the Pacific Northwest in California and, and in some, some East, uh, I've been involved with uh, National Lamb Feeders for a long time. Uh, the first lamb feeder school I went to was in uh, 1996 and uh, met an awful lot of uh, very nice and informative people, learned a whole lot, and uh, have been involved ever, ever since. Um, so with the Lamb Feeder Organization, mostly to give you a little history of those guys, um, so they're a sector of the lamb industry in the United States. So they're the, the, the sector that would, uh, typically buy, um, what we call feeder lambs or lambs, uh, from the U lamb operation in the United States and, 
and uh, kind of typically they would uh, put them in feedlots and and uh, feed them, you know, until they gained 40, 50, 60 pounds, and uh, then they would market them to a, a processor, a, a, a packer, which would harvest those animals and then uh, sell them to wholesaler, and he'd s- sell them out to food service and commissary business and a, a, the retail s- sector. So uh, kind of every every uh, different parts of the industry kind of has their own uh, representation, but it's a pretty small industry. So, so we also uh, work with the producer side of the industry and the, the processor side of the industry as, as well. So as we line up our guests, we like to try and get across the United States, get from different regions and all facets of agriculture. So we're excited to learn, more about the lambing side. So could you give our listeners a little update on what does the lamb meat market look like currently? Are we seeing good margins for producers or uh, are things struggling? Well, things are really struggling. In fact, uh, it's about as bad as I've ever seen it. I've been involved for about 45 years and uh, it's, uh, it's probably on the verge of being terrible. (laughs) Right now we, we uh what kind of happened a little bit of history you know with kind of pre-covid and then and then covid and and uh so and now with uh the state of the economy right now with input costs are are just uh um uh, unimaginably high um so and i think with uh consumer right now they're being very cautious on how they 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 spend any any uh, expendable uh, income, they're being very cautious. And uh, with all that said, um, it's the uh, the movement in the meat side of the industries has been very slow. The demand part of the industry has been a bit off. Oh, sometimes as much as thirteen percent from the previous couple of years. And so what that does is, is when the demand's off, well, then of course the, uh, the harvest side of the business has to slow up. And when the harvest side slows up, well, then that, that backs up the supply chain of the animals themselves. And, and so then there's an issue with animals getting bigger. And then uh, as the chain moves backwards, it starts to, uh, uh, expand the supply more than the harvest side of it can can do, and uh, it just just causing some real backups, some real issues right now. And and unfortunately, what that does is it it uh, forces the live price of the animals down. Uh, just to give you an example, at this time last year, we were marketing live animals for you know typically. 250 to 260 a pound and uh, now that figures more like a dollar and a quarter a pound so wow. uh, yeah so we're really trying to do some some sales we're trying to do uh some uh just some some programs to try to get the consumer turned back turned back on the lamb and try to take some of that you know expendable money that they have and hopefully you know, try to put it towards the the lamb meat side of it. Now, Reed, I know with a lot of other industries right now, there's also a lot of 
governmental regulations that are starting to come down the pipeline that are making it even more difficult to make a profit. Are any of those facing your industry as a land producer? Well, you know, there's nothing that we haven't already deal with, with like predators and, and uh, there's, there's always uh, those types of, of pasture uh, management schemes with people that, that uh, run their animals on government and forest serviced ground at certain uh, times of the year. But uh, I'm, I'm not aware of any regulations on the meat side of it or, or any of the, the uh, feeding sector that's causing any issues. Just, just the, you know, prices of grain and hay are, are very expensive right now. And, and so when you have the price of your uh, product going down and the price of uh, your inputs going up, it's, it's uh, making it pretty difficult right now. Absolutely. So do much of your meat products get exported or is it mostly uh, consumed in the U.S.? So there is some meat products in the United States that is being exported, not not a huge percentage. I'd say, you know, we're we're probably 95 percent is consumed in in the the U.S. But but what what happens is when we get these kind of situations where, you know, the, the price ran up pretty high last year and a lot of uh, retailers you know they they look at their bottom line and so they make the the switch to an imported product either from New Zealand or Australia or other places and uh so you know that's part of the equation of uh you know of backing this this product up is you know what what happens is is our US dollars so very strong it really makes it you know easy for imports to to uh, bring their their products into to our market, actually the U.S. market's the best lamb market in, in the world, and and so we're a real target for for those. And there's really no uh, import quotas or anything like that to really stop importers from uh, flooding our markets right now. Yeah, we had reported on that the, the strong dollar on that side of things. So what, what product from the lamb, is it, is it a, a lamb chop? Is it ground meat? What's the most demand product that comes out of your production? Well, you know, that's the fortunate part of lamb is that it's all really good. And, and uh, just, I, I can only speak for myself of our own little processing um, places. Uh, racks are always in very strong demand because racks are mostly a food service item. And uh, so uh, people that want to have something special for dinner, you know, they don't mind paying a little extra for a rack of lamb, for a U.S. rack of lamb. Well, Reed, if any of our listeners want to get involved with your association or just reach out to you to learn a little bit more about your operation, how can they find you? Well, you know, they can uh, Google the the National Lamb Feeders Association, uh, or they can uh, they can check out uh, the American Sheep Industry ASI. 
Uh, there's a lot of information available there on, on the web. There's there's several different uh, several different sectors in the 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 meat side of it, or and the the wool side of it. Great, thank you so much for joining us, Reed. You bet. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Delaney, an industry that I didn't know a lot about. So it was good to get brought up to speed, find out where demand hits and the climate that those producers are working in. Absolutely, Tanner. It's interesting stuff as we look at all the different facets of agriculture. And that's certainly apparent when I get to do some of these travels is different that we see worldwide, but all largely facing the same issues. That's a very accurate statement, but been another good Ag News Daily podcast episode edition. So for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.